Dear Father, we are so thankful for these gospel records. We are thankful for the gospel of John, the disciple whom you loved. We uh, thank you for his careful and tender witness. Uh, we pray that we will uh, glean from these pages uh, much about the life of your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he came to do. Uh, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. We are finally on to number 15. And we are moving from the training by the king, where he trained his disciples after the rejection. We are moving into the open opposition of the king by the religious leaders. This brings us to about six months before his death. He is now returning to Judea for the first time since he left Judea about two years prior. And we're going to uh, first encounter this festival called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, um, which serves as the setting for John 7, 8, and 9, and probably 10 as well. In order to understand what's going on in two of the discourses that Jesus gives, we want to understand two different uh, rituals that would happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. The first is the pouring out of the water. And this, uh, the priests would go down on the first day of the festival and gather water from the pool of Siloam. And then they would carry it back to the temple. Here's a little picture of the trail that they would follow. They would carry it back to the temple and they'd bring with them enough for the week that they could throw the water onto the altar. And this was to represent the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that was expected in the kingdom age. Ezekiel 39 speaks of this. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave them or leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is uh, speaking of the results of the new covenant that he would make with the house of Israel. And part of the new covenant was the pouring out of his spirit on the entire house of Israel. So this pouring out of the water at the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was in anticipation of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The second ritual was the kindling of the lamps. This would happen on the first night and would uh, precede each night of the festival where the uh, four lampstands in the, in the uh, court of the women would be lit. They were about 70 feet or 75 feet high and the priests in training would climb up the ladders and fill them with oil and they would be lit, it would light up the whole temple grounds. And this was in anticipation of the Messiah himself. Ezekiel 43 tells us, the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne 
and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. The Feast of Tabernacles anticipated the fulfillment of all of these kingdom promises to Israel. It looked forward to the day where the Messiah would rule over Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit would be poured out on each individual, and the Messiah would reign as the visible manifestation of the glory of God from the heart of Jerusalem. And so this is the festival that Jesus has gone up to, and this is the festival around which these coming discourses are focused, and we're going to see him give a discourse on living water, and also a discourse on the light of the world. But first we want to take a look at another unique circumstance that is occurring here in Judea. Keep in mind he has done most of his ministry so far in the northern parts of Galilee and even into Gentile territory. He has not gone into Jerusalem and Judea since he first went into Jerusalem and Judea at the beginning of his ministry, where he overturned the tables. When he comes back to Jerusalem, we see that many people in Jerusalem are already divided over the person of the Messiah. In John 7:11, we read the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man, and others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. One of the main ideas from this evening's message will be the division that Jesus is causing among the people of Israel. Some believe, some reject, and some are yet undecided. This will remind us of what Jesus said in the book of Matthew, that the people of Israel were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't know who to follow, and the sheep start getting divided here. They start choosing their leaders. And we see that none of these people who were seeking Jesus, the Messiah, were speaking about him openly because they feared the Jews. Now, John is using the Jews here as a term for the Jewish leaders, the leaders, especially the Pharisees. It says, when it, is, or when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, the midst of the feast would be the midweek of the Feast of Tabernacles, so about four days into the feast, before Jesus makes a public appearance. And when he does, he starts teaching, and just like always, people are amazed at how smart he is, despite the fact that he has never been educated. And now he is in Jerusalem, the heart of education in Israel, and they know he did not attend school there. They can't imagine that anyone who did not attend school in Jerusalem could possibly be an educated man, even if he had an education in Galilee. He would be considered an uneducated man. And so Jesus begins to defend his authority to teach. Jesus answered them, saying, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He is a messenger, and the message doesn't come from any rabbi or teacher, no human teacher. It comes directly from the mouth of God. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. In other words, his teaching is going to coincide with what they already know of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Those who know their Hebrew scriptures are going to recognize him. But those who have abandoned the Hebrew scriptures for other teachings will not recognize him because his voice will not sound like the voices they've been listening to. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So once again, we see the contention over the Messiah dividing over the proper application of the law. He's accusing those in Judea and Jerusalem specifically of not keeping the law of Moses. This is definitely an accusation that would ruffle some feathers at the heart of religious Judaism. But he accuses them of seeking to kill him. This would be against the law. They've not brought witnesses to try him. They have already decided upon his accusation without running a trial. We're going to see that conflict multiple times tonight. So he says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers him, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You're crazy, Jesus. No one wants to kill you. You must be possessed or something. The lines I've marked in red are contradicted within a few verses. You'll notice that this evening's passages, everything that the Jews say in uh, opposition to Jesus, they very quickly contradict themselves. And so Jesus answers, he gives them the reasoning or the rationale behind why they are seeking to kill him. He says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now the circumcision of an eight-day-old male was one of the only stipulations permitted to break the Sabbath because not circumcising a male on the eighth day would also break the law of Moses and the one superseded the other. But they have also added to the law of Moses many other laws that are not of God that even prohibit healings of other sorts. And so Jesus is making the argument, you'll allow someone to cut pieces off of a person on the Sabbath because it follows the law of Moses, but you will not allow him to heal a body on the Sabbath. And so some of the people of Jerusalem began saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So they have just contradicted their own statements. Jesus is apparently demonized because he thinks people are out to kill him. And now here they say, wait, isn't this the guy they want to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. This is referring probably to the Jewish leaders, especially the Pharisees, perhaps the Sadducees included here. The rulers do not really know that this is Christ, do they? What possible reason could they have for not going and stopping this man from speaking unless perhaps they think he might be the Messiah? And so this gets the religious leaders involved. It perks their ears up, and they say, okay, we got to take care of this man. These people say, we know where this man is from, Jesus, but wherever the Christ may come from, no one knows where he is from. Both of these statements are untrue. 
Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now, constantly throughout this discussion with Jesus, they're not going to be on the same page. Jesus is going to be speaking in a spiritual sense. He's speaking of his origins with the Father. He has already declared to them multiple times that he has come from the Father. If they listened to him, if they believed him, they would know exactly where he came from. He has given them all the witness that they need. They think he is talking about a physical sense of origin. They're wondering where his hometown was. And so they sought to seize him, but no man was able to lay his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is one of four times this evening where they will try to kill him during the Feast of Tabernacles and simply not be able to. It's not in the will of God that he die here, and he will give us the answer to why they are unable to kill him uh, at the end of this evening's message. But many of the crowd believed in him after these statements that he made. They were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Now notice their focus here on the signs. It's the signs that Jesus has performed that are enough witness for some who would believe. But those who do not believe have to reject the signs, and they specifically have to deal with a rationale for how he is able to perform these signs. When the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. This would be the temple police. They sent men to try to capture Jesus. They're trying to put him to death already. Now, one reason why it's not the Lord's will that Jesus die yet is because at this point, six months before Jesus would die, Israel still has the right to put someone to death by their own courts. They would lose that in about three months to Rome. If Jesus were captured here, he would be killed by stoning. Six months later, after God orchestrates the political atmosphere so that Rome takes the right to execute a criminal, only Rome will be able to execute Jesus. And Romans don't practice execution by stoning. They practice execution by hanging, especially to hang on a tree or a cross. So we see that it is in the will of God that Jesus not yet be killed. So Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, once again, totally misunderstanding Jesus' spiritual statement, where does this man intend to go? that he, we will not find him. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now here he is, they are probably speaking of the Jews who live outside of the land of Israel, especially in Hellenized areas. And for someone to go and live outside of Israel, being a Jew, would be as good as renouncing their Jewish roots, their Jewish heritage and their Jewish blood. This is a taboo. You don't do this. You don't go outside the land of Israel if you are an Israeli. And so they are wondering, is he going to go defile himself by ministering to the Hellenized Jews outside of the land of Israel? 
Jesus takes this opportunity to offer them personal salvation, and he's using the Feast of Tabernacles that is occurring contemporaneously in order to teach them this spiritual truth. Once again, he is using something in their surrounding to teach them of the deeper meaning. He says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now Jesus is not here offering the fulfillment of the passages in Ezekiel that we saw, but we are seeing an applicational fulfillment. The house of Israel is not here going to be converted, but the individual has the opportunity to receive Jesus as the Messiah, and so have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We see the promise isn't yet efficacious. It will come about, but it's not yet offered to them. This he spoke of the Spirit, John interprets for us, whom those who believe in him were to receive. This has a future aspect, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We see that this new creation that God is going to make, this creation in the church that will be at first a Jew-only body, we see that that cannot come about until he has been sacrificed, raised again, and glorified with the Father in heaven. We'll see later on in the book of John that the Holy Spirit can't come until Jesus has been seated at the right hand of his Father and our proof that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father is that the Holy Spirit did come on the day of Pentecost. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Now remember, the prophet is not a reference to the Messiah, but of the ultimate prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Moses promised that a great prophet would come in the last day, and he was probably speaking of John, because he would point to the Messiah. They missed John, and so they're still looking for the prophet. But then others were saying, this is the Christ, which is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So some recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. Others saw that he was from God, but did not understand the spiritual importance of who he was. And yet still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Then they say, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now remember, they said they knew where Jesus was from. Does it sound like they knew where Jesus was from? either spiritually or physically, because they just described Jesus' origin. He is a descendant of David, and he is from the town of Bethlehem. They think he is from Galilee. They think he is from Nazareth. He grew up there, but that's not where he is from. He did fulfill this specific requirement to be the Messiah. They're not doing their homework, and they're rejecting him because of their own lack of understanding. And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some were accepting, some were rejecting, and they're turning on one another. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Once again, it is not God's will that Jesus be sacrificed at this time. 
But then those temple police returned to the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to know, why didn't they bring Jesus with them? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They were all enamored with the way Jesus taught, with the authority that he spoke with. The Pharisees, we'll see, uh, don't often answer rationally. They're very caught up in their own theology. They're unteachable. Having an unteachable heart makes someone spiritually blind. The Pharisees then said to them, you have not been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Now this crowd which does not know the law is the definition that they would give the name Ha-Am-Aretz, which is simply the lay people. These lay people who didn't follow the law, they weren't particularly religious Jews, they were thought accursed. So they're saying, you're not as dumb as a layman, are you? You would listen to those people who don't know anything about the law, who follow Jesus, but you won't take it from us, who know the law, who study the law, that this man is not the Messiah. But as we will see as we go through tonight, that these Pharisees don't truly know the law. If they knew the law, they would follow Jesus Christ. And so we see that nothing they say is true. Interestingly enough, one of the men among these Pharisees is Nicodemus. We saw him just a couple of chapters ago, a couple months ago. He who came to him before being of them. He said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, this is not really a defense of Jesus, but it is a defense of the law. Nicodemus does appear to understand better than the other Pharisees the requirements of the law, or at least he is more willing to acquiesce to the law, even if it might bear, not bear the conclusion that they are looking for. Nicodemus proves himself to be a more faithful law abider. But now see what their response is. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? In other words, are you an idiot? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They prove their own lack of knowledge of their own scriptures. Because Jonah was a prophet from Galilee, Hosea was a prophet from Galilee, and Elisha was a prophet from Galilee. Not only that, but the Pharisees themselves claimed that one, at least one prophet came from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, which would of a necessity make at least 10 prophets come from Galilee. So this statement makes no sense, either in the Hebrew scriptures or in their own theology. This is a convenient decision that they have made in order to prove their point by fiat. This does not have any basis anywhere in scripture. They're claiming to know the law better than anyone else, and yet in every word they say, they prove they don't truly know the law. We have an interesting event here in John chapter 8, and it is the one and only time that the Pharisees try to trip Jesus up with the law of Moses itself. Other controversies they have with Jesus focus around the oral law. 
This is the only attempt they make to get him to contradict the law of Moses, and it fails horribly, and they are all terribly embarrassed by it, and so they don't dare try that again. But this happens the next day, after the last day of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus went back into the temple and was teaching. And so the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, caught in the very act. And they asked him, Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Jesus has what they think, only two options, either to condemn her and have them stone her, or to contradict the law of Moses. Jesus picks secret option letter C and uh, fools them all, but in doing so, does not break the law of Moses. Both these options that they presented Jesus with would have broken the law. Jesus perfectly adheres to the law where anyone else would have broken it. And so he, uh, oh, here is the law in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. If there is a woman who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So this is what they are referring to when they ask uh, if the law of Moses should be kept here by stoning this woman. John, once again, giving us the inspired interpretation of what's going on here, says, they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. We know that they were trying to trip him up here. They did not honestly have a question for him, and he knew this. And at first it appears that their question doesn't merit a response. But when you understand what's going on here, you realize it's the best response he could possibly have given. Because Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, most people try to figure out what he was writing, and this misses the point, and that's not really anyone's fault. But in the Greek, it's absolutely clear that the focus, that the point of what's going on in this sentence has nothing to do with the writing, but all to do with the finger. In fact, there's only one other place in all of Scripture where the finger of God is mentioned, and it was in the giving of the law. When he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, that's Moses, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. They're trying to trip Jesus up in a matter of the Mosaic Law when he himself wrote the Mosaic Law. With his own finger, he wrote it on two tablets of stone and handed it to Moses. Sometimes we have a difficulty rationalizing the statements that no man has ever seen God, and yet Moses saw the back of God. How has Moses ever seen a physical manifestation of God? He's seen Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. It was Jesus Christ who was with him on the mountain. It was Jesus Christ who spoke to him from a burning bush. It was the finger of Jesus Christ who wrote the Mosaic Law. He can't be tripped up. They didn't get it. 
they kept persisting. And so Jesus straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. What did they forget to do? They forgot to bring their witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so that you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, I accidentally deleted a verse in here. Uh, but the witnesses can't be guilty of the same sin. This is from Deuteronomy 19. If a witness was involved in the same crime, he can't testify against someone else. Now, they didn't bring forth any witnesses, but they told Jesus she was caught in the very act. They were unable to produce anyone to accuse her, so either they were lying or they were guilty of the same sin. Perhaps they had even tricked this woman into this adultery so that they would have an accusation to bring against her so that they could try to trip Jesus up. Their own bloodlust for Jesus led them into breaking the righteousness of the law. And so when they heard it, they began to go, one by one, beginning with the older ones, the ones who did probably understand the law better. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. No one was able to be a witness. Either there were no witnesses, or they were all guilty of the same sin. And so Jesus, straightening up, said to this woman, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now the woman is guilty of adultery. She's guilty of breaking the righteousness of the law. But the law does require due process. It does require that a condemnation for that sin be brought on the basis of witnesses. And without that, it doesn't mean she hasn't sinned. But it means she can't be punished in this world under the law by it. She has broken the righteousness of the law, and she, like everyone else, has fallen short of the righteousness of God. So another issue is here at stake, and that's this woman's faith. He says to the woman, or she said, no one Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go and from now on sin no more. He's not able to condemn her under the law, but this does not excuse her sin. This is not a license to go and sin more, but rather this is a command not to sin any longer. Now, there are two options, and neither one is specified here. Either this woman is a believer or she is not a believer. The term Lord can refer to either the Messiah, to God, or just to someone of a higher position that she recognizes as having authority. If she is an unbeliever, this command to go and sin no more would have to do with her faith because the only sin that an unbeliever is condemned for is the sin of unbelief. This is a command to believe. If she is a believer, if she does believe in Jesus as the Messiah, then she has no reason to keep on sinning. She ought to rely on the Lord and his spirit in order to stop sinning. Now we see this more as we move into the rest of the 
chapter, chapter 8, because this sets the groundwork for another controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we'll see Jesus still has this controversy over this woman on his mind. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now this is what's offered to that woman. He doesn't tell her, go and sin no more, and then leave her to be, but he shows her what the offer is, that in him there is light that leads, light that guides, and one who is living in the Messiah will be able to see the sins that they commit and will be able to ask the Father for forgiveness of them. This is our First John 1, 9 passage uh, that we know if we sin in the family of God, that Jesus' blood still covers us. We confess those sins and we're brought back into fellowship. This does not excuse the sins. This does not make it okay for us to go on sinning. But this does bring us back into fellowship. None of us are commanded to go on and sin because we can. We're commanded to sin no more. The Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're saying, aha, Jesus, you say we need two witnesses. All right, where's your two witnesses? Now, this is a provision for man because man is by nature sinful. Man is by nature untrustworthy because he is a rebel against God. Jesus answered them and says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. He's not a man so that he needs two witnesses, but he does bring two witnesses nonetheless because he is witnessing to man. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He knows the whole picture. So he tells these Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh and I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it but I am the Father who sent me. His judgments aren't ever just his judgments alone, but always within the will of God. When he makes a judgment, it is from the authority of God. Now we remember back in John 3, where Jesus made a similar statement to Nicodemus. He said, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His first advent, he is here for salvation. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is not bringing down this judgment. The results of this judgment he will deal out at the judgment seat. But the judgment is already on anyone who has not believed. So he says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. And so I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Here he brings his two witnesses. Not only that, but his two witnesses each have a threefold testimony. Jesus testifies to himself in his words. He declares himself to be the Messiah. He testifies in his works, especially in the ultimate work where he provides the perfect sacrifice on the cross. 
He also testifies about himself in his miracles, especially his messianic miracles, those miracles that only the Son of God is capable of doing. God also had a threefold testimony. First, at the baptism of Jesus, he spoke from the heavens to a public crowd and told them, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration as well, Jesus or God spoke from heaven to a private group of three and told them, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And as well, at the triumphal entry, God is going to speak again from the heavens and say that he has already glorified Jesus and he will glorify him again. This threefold testimony of each of these two witnesses is overwhelming evidence in any Jewish court. But once again, they don't get it. They're a little thick. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury and he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. It was not yet God's will for him to be captured. And so the conflict over the Messiah really picks up. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. He's getting a little bit more literal for their sake. They're just not getting it. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is Jesus' declaration of the content of faith necessary for salvation. They had to believe in him. They had to believe in Jesus, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, and who evidenced the fact that he was the Messiah. And without receiving him as the Messiah, no one would live. Now we'll see this later when he refers to the sheep who hear his voice and the sheep who don't. One issue that uh, bothered me for a while is, aren't people saved through faith before Jesus ever declared to be the Messiah? And yes, those who believed also received the Messiah. If they were saved, not one of them did not receive him as the Messiah. If they truly did believe in God the Father and his promises and provisions and the future promise of a Messiah, they would receive him when he came. The issue for those who did not receive Jesus is they already did not believe. So this becomes a non-issue. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. But those who do not are already judged and they will die in their sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Now remember all this that they said, we know who he is. We know where he's from. We know this and that about him. We reject him. And now we see they really don't know much about him. Maybe they're starting to get the idea that they've judged too early. Some of them are just stuck too deep in their own ideas. Others begin to come to faith because they realize they don't know who this man is. Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? He's not bringing any new message. 
He's been preaching for two and a half years, and surely they've heard about him. They were already looking for him and expecting him at the Feast of Tabernacles. This man was claiming to be the Messiah. Surely he would show up to this feast that would be fulfilled by the Messiah. But Jesus tells them they, or they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father, God the Father. They were still focused on the natural, not the spiritual. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. In other words, the full understanding is not going to come until after He's been crucified. Some will come to faith, but many more will come to faith after that time. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus' testimony of himself is convincing many people. Keep in mind, he hasn't been ministering in Judea all this time. There was a ripe harvest when he arrived. And so he speaks to those who have just come to faith. Because just coming to faith isn't the end of the deal for believers. There's also many things that are promised to believers afterwards, and there is growth for believers also. There is a believer and there is a disciple. The goal is for this to be the same person, that everyone who has believed will also continue on to be a disciple and to grow in a salvation that they have been given once for all. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is the promise to all believers of all dispensations that faith is a prerequisite to further understanding. To believe in God and to receive the word that he has given reveals more. But once again, the physical is trumping the spiritual and their preconceived theology is getting in the way of their deepening faith. Now, they're believers. They are saved believers. They have believed everything that is necessary for them to have eternal life, but they're not yet growing, and we see why. They answered Jesus, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Now, first, they obviously either don't understand their own social situation of technically being slave to Rome, or they are simply ignoring it. But remember what the Pharisees teach, that what is necessary for entering into the kingdom of God is being from the bloodline of Abraham. They say, we have never been a slave to anyone. We are Abraham's descendants. We've already got all that we need. And so Jesus teaches them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, Jesus is in the house of God forever. He has always been in the house of God. He is able to make someone free forever from their sins. And so this is the future promise 
to all of these believers, but it is also a progressive and present promise. They have been set free from the penalty of their sins through faith, and so they have the ability to overcome sin while they are resting in Jesus. He has set them free. This eternal future that they look forward to, where they will be removed from the presence of sin, is already in operation today in overcoming the power of sin. As they continue to believe, as they continue in his word, as they grow and become disciples, they will experience this freedom from sin. Either way, the first and the last, the freedom from the penalty of sin and the future freedom from the presence of sin are guaranteed. The only question left is, how will they live their lives and will they walk in the power that comes with salvation to overcome the power of sin. We see also that they are delivered from Satan through faith, but now Jesus expands his audience. He started by talking just to the believing Jews, but here he's answering a theological question that is tripping up everyone in the crowd. So he begins to address all of them. I know that you are Abraham's descendants yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now he's made a distinction between his father and their father, and this is going to trip them up in the physical sense, but pretty soon they will get the gist of what he's saying, and it will upset them. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. What they are doing to Jesus, breaking the law here, to put a man to death or to seek to kill him without a trial, without bringing witnesses, without even saying which sin it is that he committed that would make him worthy of death. This is surely not the works of Abraham. Abraham was a righteous man. And so he says, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We're not illegitimate children. They're speaking in a physical sense. They might be referring to not being Samaritans, perhaps, or might maybe not being Gentiles. They might think this is the accusation that Jesus is bringing against them saying, you're not really children of Abraham, but I am. This is not what Jesus was saying. So they say, we have one father, that is God. Now Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. So now he said, they're not children of Abraham. They're not children of God. Not many options are left for them here. I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Now, we could go through all the Gospels and kind of just bang our head against the wall and wonder why they're so thick and why they're not getting it. But, but by the grace of God, there go we. In their situation, we may not have understood. They don't have all of the context behind it. They had everything necessary to understand. They had everything necessary to believe. But the problem was they didn't actually know their own scriptures. 
They knew the interpretation of their scriptures by the rabbis, but these were false interpretations, and they had nothing to do with the law of Moses. So Jesus says, you were of your father, the devil. You can't get much clearer than that. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer. He was the one who brought death into humanity by tempting the woman and tricking the man. From the beginning, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Now remember, he is saying that he is your father, and he is the father of lies. They by nature are liars, he is saying. Now I didn't include Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, but there you can go to see what an unsaved, unregenerate person is. He is in the kingdom of darkness, and he is a murderer and a liar, along with many other things that characterize Satan as well. They are spiritual progeny of the enemy. And we see the effect that Satan has on unbelievers as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded them. They have not seen the light of the Messiah. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. They don't understand his words because they're truthful, and what they know are lies. So which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. They still don't get it or they don't want to get it. You can almost see them putting their fingers in their ears and yelling, la, 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 la. They just don't want to believe it. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? And they're questioning his lineage now. And you have a demon, by the way. They can't get over this one. But this is the only excuse that the Pharisees have been able to come up with about how he is able to do signs that only the Messiah would be able to do. Jesus answered, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory, and there is one who seeks and judges. Now remember this accusation here, that he has a demon. This is going to be the setup for the next messianic miracle that cannot possibly be explained by demon possession. But first we have one more deliverance that Jesus offers. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon because Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. In other words, they believe Jesus is claiming that Abraham and the prophets didn't keep his word. They weren't present at the transfiguration where they saw Moses and Elijah, that there is life after death. They don't understand that Jesus is not speaking of the physical death of the human body. 
but he is speaking of the eternal life that is offered through faith and the eternal death that is the portion of anyone who has never believed. So they keep saying, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? They think they got him here. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus gives an excellent answer. And I think he at this point is trying to goad them just a bit. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and he was glad. Now you might ask when this happened, Jesus or Abraham saw the pre-incarnate Christ at least three times, once in Genesis 15, once in Genesis 17, and once in Genesis 18. And each time Abraham was glad to see this angel of the Lord. So they say that, or the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now I would take a bit of offense to this, Jesus is about 36 years old here, and they're saying, you might be 50. You're not older than 50. This might give us a little bit of a hint as to how difficult his ministry had been. He looked close enough that he might be 50. This was a rigorous and difficult ministry that Jesus embarked on, and this he hadn't yet even seen the most difficult part yet. So already he looks like he could be about 50 years old at the age of 36. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now he could have said before Abraham was, I was. The pre-existence, this would still be an incredible statement, but no, he chose his words very carefully. Before Abraham was, I am. The very name in Hebrew of God. This is a claim to deity. This is a claim of equality with Jehovah God. They understood this. Most liberal scholars don't understand this today. They think Jesus never claimed to be God. But the Jews knew that he did because they began to attempt to execute him using the execution for blasphemy. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Still, it was not God's time for him to die. In Exodus 3.14, these were his words coming out of the burning bush as well. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This has always been his name. And they sought to stone him for it, not recognizing that God himself was in their midst. Now we're going to have to breeze through some of this. You do have your note packets, so uh, you can read what I don't get to in there. But we come now to the final messianic miracle. This is the healing of a man born blind. You remember that the first two were healing of a Jewish leper, and the next one was exercising a demon-causing muteness. And in both of these instances, the crowd was amazed because they said, never in Israel has this ever been done by anyone. And so the healing of the blind man, we see the same statement made. 
Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This was something that only the Messiah would be able to do. But this was also something that could not be done by a demon-possessed person. A demon-possessed person could not heal. The Pharisees thought they were clever in saying that a bigger demon could cast out a lower demon. Jesus says that's nonsense, but still it convinced some people. But it would be impossible to convince people who are rationally considering the healing that takes place here that a demon-possessed man was responsible for this and that demons had in fact rendered this miracle. The Pharisees are going to be hard-pressed to come up with another explanation for how this happened. So we look first at the physical healing. They are still in Jerusalem. It is just after the Feast of Tabernacles. And they pass by a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, a little understanding of Jewish rabbinic theology of the first century helps to explain what's going on here. The Jews do not believe, or the rabbis perhaps, did not believe in original sin. They did not believe that the sin of Adam was the cause of all evil in the world, but personal sin. And so each person's defects or each problem in the world could be traced back to individual sins, not the fall itself. And so they're wondering, was it possible that this man incurred his mother's sins in the form of his own defects? Or else, was he able to sin while he was still in the womb? This is a challenging theological question for them because they start at the wrong place. So they're asking their wise rabbi to solve this theological problem for them, and rather than answering a fool in their folly, Jesus reshapes their theology. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if they had even begun to comprehend the importance or the message of the book of Job, they would have understood this. Hopefully, they will, or they had gone back later and realized that this was always the message that sins or the sin of Adam has broken the world. Not every problem can be traced back to your own sins, but God is always able to use what is intended for evil for good. And here God is doing that. God is able to use this man's blindness to bring glory to himself by glorifying the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world, referring to that, uh, the kindling of the lamps in the Feast of Tabernacles. The, the uh, temple would still be lit up at this point. This is only a day past. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, and he made clay of the spittle, and he applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now Jesus is apparently not here at the point that he comes back seeing. But remember, this pool of Siloam is the same pool where the priests had gone down to collect water for the pouring out of the water and the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
this would be a very occupied pool, a very busy pool. Many people would be around to see this miracle take place. So therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. But the man kept saying about himself, I am the one. They couldn't comprehend this miracle having happened. And now an issue arises when the man starts to explain to them how exactly Jesus performed this miracle. And in fact, once he tells them, they immediately start looking for Jesus and they bring this man to the Pharisees. Their reaction is, uh-oh. They brought the man to the Pharisees and we see now it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Now Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose this method to heal this blind man on the Sabbath day. Jesus spares no efforts in breaking every bit of the Mishnah he possibly can. Specifically, in the book of Sabbaths, 108 verse 20, it says to heal a blind man on the Sabbath, it is prohibited to inject wine in his eyes. It is also prohibited to make, or, or to make mud with spittle and smear it on his eyes. Jesus did not break the law of Moses, but he did break the Mishnah because the Mishnah was not the law of Moses and did not represent the law of Moses. It represented the imaginations and the hubris of man that he would speak for God, reinterpret God's word, and elevate himself above God. Jesus broke the Mishnah because it was not the law of Moses and it was causing people to stumble. He divides like a surgeon between false theology and the true word of God. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes and he said he is a prophet. In other words, he is from God. That's as far as he's willing to go at this point. But they can't come to a conclusion. They have to either discredit this man's witness, which would be the easy task, or explain how Jesus was able to do this while at the same time doing what they believed to be a sin. If he is currently committing a sin, his actions can't possibly be from God because God wouldn't hear him. And so the Jews did not believe the man who had been healed. He had been blind and had received sight, so they called his parents. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now notice, 
The Pharisees are the only ones in any of these accounts who are willing to say anything they know to be false. Everyone else who brings a witness says or uh, does not lie about anything they do know, but also are unwilling to suppose on anything else beyond what they know. And that is because, as John interprets for us, lets us know a bit of the background information, they were afraid of the Jews. Why were they afraid of the Jews? Because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which would be a punishment akin to death in the Jewish community, being excommunicated from the social society. You could not participate in Jewish culture outside of the synagogue. Anyone who had a positive word to say about the Messiah was running up against these threats of the Pharisees to banish them to a fate close to death. So these parents dared not lie about what they did know, but they also dare not go any further. They weren't able to give an accurate or a complete testimony because they were coerced by these Pharisees. So for this reason, his parents said, he's of age, go and ask him. Let him bear the consequences of speaking the truth. So they interrogate him again, but they start in kind of an odd way. They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Identifying the sins of a person is never a reason to praise God. We should be praising God in all things, but that is not the cause of praising God. They are happy because they feel vindicated, but how are they vindicated? By their own decision. Not because they have uncovered any evidence that proves what they believe. He answered, or he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Once again, he is not willing to, to uh, step outside of his line here. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. In other words, deal with that one fact and maybe I'll believe you. So they said to him, what did he do or what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? This man is kind of losing his cool a bit. He's getting a little sarcastic and a little lippy. And the Pharisees were not blind to this. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Now, this man is no disciple of, of Jesus. He doesn't even at this point believe in Jesus as the Messiah. His best guess was that this man might be a prophet. But they claim that he is following this man, the Messiah. But they are disciples of Moses. They say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. That's right. They don't know where he was from, and they don't realize that he was the very God who spoke to Moses. So if this man was a disciple of Jesus, he was going back to the source, and he was on par with Moses for receiving the word directly from God himself. They instead subjected themselves to the misinterpretation of Moses that they had rendered for themselves. They weren't even following Moses, as Jesus told them explicitly earlier. This man answered and said to them, Well, 
here is an amazing thing. That you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. They can't give an answer for how he is able to perform such a miracle, but yet they're able to accuse him. They say that we know that, or the blind man continues, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You could almost hear him saying, chew on that. And so they answered him, you are born entirely in your sins. And you see, they're caught up in their own theological system. His blindness was because of his sins. You were born entirely in your sins, and are you teaching us? They don't realize that they were also born in sin, and they also need a Savior. And then they put him out. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. He was cast out of Jewish society. And perhaps this paved the way for the next event. That Jesus, after hearing he had been put out, found the man and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? which is a messianic title. And the man answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, referring to the miracle that Jesus has performed already, and he is the one who is talking with you. In other words, I am the Messiah. And this man understood exactly what he was saying and said, Lord, I believe. And then the natural response to faith, the natural response to hearing truth, he worshipped him. Jesus said, I, uh, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sins. This contradicts their theology. But if they had been in the same situation as this man, perhaps they would have believed and their sins would be taken away through faith. But since you say we see, your sin remains. It's because they are unable to get over their own theological system and hear the true words of God and believe the true words of Moses that had already been given to them. They would have everything they need to believe in the Messiah, but they simply cannot. Uh, I do have one section left to go, so I'll give you guys an option. We can either finish that out, it might take another 10 minutes, or you can read it in the notes. What would you prefer? Onward? Okay, if anyone can't go onward, uh, feel free to go, and this will be recorded and uploaded onto YouTube so you can still catch the teaching. Uh, but let's go on to our last 21 verses here. The third of Jesus' uh, discourses that we are looking at tonight, this is the true shepherd. This will answer that question that we saw right at the beginning of this evening when Jesus came to Jerusalem and we saw the people dividing over which shepherd to follow, Jesus or the Pharisees. And so Jesus tells them now about as explicitly as he possibly can, although 
he is still teaching in parables, that he, the Messiah, is the true shepherd of Israel. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Now, if we're to follow with this whole discourse, we'll quickly see that he's not talking about how to get saved here. He's talking about the teachers. They did not come through the door themselves, but they sought authority by a different means. They did not come through the law. They did not arrive at the Messiah, who the law, uh, the only uh, one who could keep the law was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the only one with perfect righteousness. Had they entered through the law, the only possible conclusion would be Jesus the Messiah. But they sought to go around a different way, and they became thieves and robbers. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So he says to him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He's speaking here of the remnant of Israel the Israel of God, those believers who are in Israel. They will hear this call of the Messiah and they will be led out. When he puts forth his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They knew the words of the Hebrew scriptures. They were not corrupted, but they believed Moses. And so they believed Jesus, just as Jesus said in John 5. If they had known the words of Moses, they would know his words as well. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this is not the case for all of Israel, but only the Israel of God. The unbelievers in Israel are willing to go and follow another shepherd. But notice they're not understanding this generally says this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. That's another way of saying this parable. Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. So he gets a little bit more specific for them. And he starts to explain for the crowd what his parable means. Now he is using parabolic language to explain his parable. So this is a lot like Matthew 13, but if they follow along, they'll be able to get the gist of it. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He is the way in. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the way is narrow that leads to salvation and few there are that find it. This does not mean the path of how you walk your life is a narrow one. This means the entrance into salvation is as narrow as it possibly could be. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is that narrow door. No works added to it, but the work of Jesus Christ alone. And the issue here is that they are not going through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There is no way up, around, or through without going through the Messiah. But if they go through me, they will be saved and they will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He is presenting to them their two options. 
They are sheep without a shepherd, and two different shepherds are presenting themselves. There is the good shepherd, Jesus the Messiah, and there are the thieves and robbers, the bad shepherds. So Jesus tells them, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he explains that he lays down the sheep because they belong to him. He's no hired hand who would flee at the sight of danger. He's no hired hand who cares nothing of the sheep, but cares for himself. He is self-sacrificial, and this proves himself to be the good shepherd. This is the duty and the task of a shepherd. And this correlates with Ezekiel 34. This is not the fulfillment of it, as Ezekiel 34 looks forward to a future time in Israel's future history, where they will again be led astray by false teachers. And indeed, this happens even today. It is the teachers of Israel generally that do not receive the Messiah and so lead people astray. And it is a very, very difficult path to walk for a Jew to receive Jesus the Messiah. But Ezekiel 34 speaks of the future day where this will hit a maximum as it was back in Jesus' day. And we see the activity of these false shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. Now, for the first nine verses, we see that they are not protecting the sheep and that they are feeding themselves instead of the sheep, but it's not here until verse 10 we realize they've been feeding on the sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. These religious leaders are feeding on the sheep. Their authority comes from having people listen to them. You know, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan's authority came from the king of this world, Adam, who was supposed to be subject to God, subjecting himself to Satan instead. Without having people follow, there is no power. This is only true of a created being. Jesus also says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, he has already revealed the church to the disciples, and he never really gives us much more revelation on the church. He gives the disciples more revelation on the church. But this is one of the few places where he does speak of a future Gentile group that would be added in. It looks forward to Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, who were the Gentiles, verses 11 and 12 tell you just how far off the Gentiles were. They have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is Paul's revelation of the mystery of the church, that both Israel and the Gentiles would be part of it and in the church would be equal. Now, this does not take away Israel's unique blessings that are awaiting the future millennial kingdom, but this does make their rewards as the church equal. Those are the others, the other flock that Jesus has to bring in together with the sheep at a later time. 
But for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Now we see why no one has been able to put a hand on Jesus. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. And where does he get this authority? It says he has the authority to lay it down, that no one can take it from him. He also has the authority to take it up again. He and he alone has the keys to death in Hades, we see in Revelation chapter 1. This commandment I receive from the Father, that's his authority. God's will is for him to lay down his life willingly and then to take it up again, demonstrating his power over life and death so that the promise of life after death is efficacious. We can trust it. We can rely on it because it was the same power that rose him from the dead. Not only that, but he as the light to this world who promises guidance in this world as we follow his word. In Colossians, it says that the same power that rose him from the grave is the same power that is at work already in us today. It is already rending us from the kingdom of darkness, and it has placed us perfectly in the heavenlies with him in our position. And anyone at the moment of faith is automatically transferred from the slave market of sin into the perfect righteousness and freedom of Christ. And once again, we see the theme of tonight, division, demonstrated. It says, a division occurred again among the Jews. Because of these words, many of them were saying he has a demon. They are accepting the Pharisaic excuse for how Jesus could possibly perform these messianic miracles, but they are receiving this without any evidence. They say he has a demon and he is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others are saying these are not the sayings of the one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? They are starting to see. All right, that is division. Next week, read Luke chapters 10 through 13. And also you can finish up John chapter 10. The homework is in Student Manual Lessons 105 through 112. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for these wonderful words of your Son, Jesus Christ. He truly is the living water, the light of the world, and the good shepherd, the door to the sheep. We pray that we are faithful to continue living by his word, to be led by this light, and to share that light with others. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.